From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show. Nice to be with you on this Monday morning. And we've got a fantastic show lined up for you. I'm really looking forward to it. Later on, we're going to be speaking to Rob Hutchinson. He is from Dear South Africa, talking to us about what is going on in Parliament and how you can be a part of uh, the process. So uh, do look out for that. Rob joins us every single Monday and has some very interesting, uh, very interesting aspects of Poland that uh, we're going to be talking about. But uh, I'm very excited to say that after the break, we're going to be doing something a little bit extraterrestrial. We're going to be speaking to Avi Loeb. He is a professor of science at Harvard University, and he has recently uh, published a book about the theoretical possibilities of aliens visiting Earth, and uh, it's absolutely fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to it. If you've ever wondered if there are aliens, if there are civilizations elsewhere in the galaxy, in the universe, and you've never known if there's proper science behind that, well, in our next segment, you are going to be, I think, pleasantly surprised about uh, what actually uh, is out there and what is being discussed. We have on the line... Uh, professor Avi Loeb, he is a professor of science at Harvard University and has recently published a book called Extraterrestrial about some of the science uh, and some of the newest science regarding, regarding, uh, regarding alien life and, uh, and, and civilizations and the technology that might help us connect with them. Avi, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. Thanks for having me. So to begin with, before we get to the aliens, um, let's look at something a little bit local. You're, you're actually from Israel originally. You're from a, a farming community. Tell us about how you went from there uh, to studying the, the outreaches of space uh, and, uh, and, and at Harvard. Yes, indeed. Uh, I was born on a farm uh, in Israel, uh, in a moshav. Uh, I used to collect eggs every afternoon and uh, on weekends I would drive a tractor to the hills uh, of, of the village and uh, read philosophy books. I was mostly interested in the bigger questions we have uh, in life and I wanted to become a philosopher uh, uh, later on in my life. Um, and uh, as, as you know, um, there is obligatory military service in Israel and at age 18 I had to serve. and. I had two options, either running in the fields with a gun or uh, doing something more intellectual, uh, which in a way is closer to philosophy, uh, pursuing physics for the defense of the country. There is a special elite program called Talpiot that recruits uh, 20 to 30 young recruits every, every year, and uh, they are supposed to study first uh, physics and mathematics and then apply it uh, for the benefit. Uh, of the of Israel, uh, and uh, I, I went. I prefer to do that because it's closer to philosophy. It's more intellectual, and uh, I finished my PhD at age 24 within that program. And uh, also, uh, we I, I proposed a, a project to 
the, the Star Wars initiative of uh, President Reagan in the U.S., uh, it was the first international project that was funded by that program, and that brought me to um, uh, Washington, D.C. quite frequently. In one of the visits, uh, I went to Princeton, uh, New Jersey, uh, visited the Institute for Advanced Study, where uh, I was introduced to uh, an astrophysicist, John Bacall, that is married to an Israeli, and uh, he invited me to visit again and then offered me a five-year fellowship under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. And uh, I thought, you know, that's the kind of opportunity that you cannot decline. And uh, I had to learn the vocabulary. I didn't know how the sun shines. And then there was a, a junior faculty position at Harvard, and I thought, uh, well, you know, maybe I'll just apply. And, uh, and the other people were afraid of taking that job because uh, it doesn't, it, it wasn't supposed to lead anywhere. The tenure uh, likelihood was very small at Harvard. The previous person that was tenured was 20 years earlier. And so uh, I, I didn't worry about it. So they gave it to me as a second choice. And I didn't worry because I, I, I always had plan B. I could go back to the farm. And uh, actually nature is still uh, more appealing to me than, than people. Uh, and uh, it so happened that after three years, they gave me tenure there. And after uh, about uh, 14 years later, um, I became the department chair, the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. Uh, I've been the longest serving chair uh, for the past nine years, just finished my term. Um, it was extended twice. Uh, so altogether, uh, you know, when I was tenured at Harvard, I realized actually, even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm actually married to my true love because there are fundamental questions in astrophysics that we can answer. Like, uh, you know, what, what is the scientific version of the biblical story of Genesis? You know, how did the first light form in the universe? And, uh, also, how did life came to exist? And uh, are we the only form of life that is out there? Or uh, is there a smarter kid on the block? You know, very fundamental questions. And I feel very fortunate to be able to address these questions with uh, scientific tools now. Now, my understanding of astrophysics is, is not very much. But, but what, from my, uh, what from I can understand is that, in fact, some of the stuff in terms of understanding if there's another civilization can actually be brought down just to a formula. Uh, you, you, there's a, there's, there's a basic formula. How many stars? How many uh, galaxies? And, and, and how, depending on how you feel you want to punch in the numbers, uh, that can tell you whether there's likely to be a lot of other people or other civilizations out there, or if there's actually likely to be very few. So, so I take it that you're, you're on the, on the side of the equation that suggests that actually there may be quite a number of other civilizations uh, all over the universe. Well, um, actually, I, I don't think uh, that the formula, which is called the Drake equation, is uh, uh, the relevant one, because uh, uh, it's basically asking, uh, what's the chance that we will have, uh, we will receive a, a radio signal from space that indicates another civilization? And that is just like having a phone conversation. Uh, you need the counterpart to be alive to have a phone conversation. We cannot have a phone conversation with the Mayans. The Mayan culture is gone. Uh, but we can find relics uh, from them that they left uh, in archaeological sites, right? So, um, actually, we can do the same thing in space, and I call it space archaeology, searching for relics left behind by technological civilizations that uh, 
send them to space, you know, just like we sent uh, uh, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons and other equipment. You know, uh, the sun is actually a very late comer. Um, and most stars formed billions of years before the sun. And if they had the technological civilizations like ours, those must have sent equipment into space. And uh, by now it may not be functional billions of years later, but but we can still find this uh, just as we find relics in archaeological digs. And uh, it would be quite remarkable for us to, for example, identify a plastic bottle on the beach. You know, most of the time we see rocks, but if we find a plastic bottle in space, that it in implies um, that um, uh, there is uh, someone out there. And, and it could very well be that we are not the smartest kid on the block. They were smarter kid on the, kids on the block in the past. Even if they are not around anymore, we can't really converse with them. We will find their technologies that are far more advanced than, than we currently possess. And uh, all we need to do is to search. Uh, so uh, this is an amazing opportunity for science to be exciting to the public. Now, essentially, your book is is based around this exact premise, uh, a, a space object that was identified uh, by astronomers called Oumuamua, uh, came past uh, our uh, solar system at, at some point, and uh, about three years ago. And, and essentially, what your book does is is give a, a sense about why you think this object uh, could could necessarily not be natural or, or has has elements to it that are in fact artificial that would suggest that it might very well be one of these pieces of, of space junk so can you can you take us through why you think that this this object uh, briefly uh, might actually be part of what you're what you're what we might be looking for in terms of uh, old civilizations yes so uh, science is driven by evidence um, and the uh, what was uh, interesting here is that this was the first object, Oumuamua, its name means a scout in the Hawaiian language, and it was given that name because it was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii. This object at first was thought to be just like the comets and asteroids we have seen before from the solar system. But then as we unraveled more about it, it turned out that it, it, it's not a comet. It doesn't have a cometary tail. There is no gas or dust around it. And yet it exhibits an extra push away from the sun, uh, which you don't see in, in rocks that do not have any evaporation of gases from them. Uh, and uh, we have seen such a situation in uh, actually a few months ago in, in September 2020, there was uh, an object identified uh, which was traced to be a rocket booster from 1966 that we launched. And it was hollow and had very thin walls. And therefore, as a result of reflecting sunlight, it was pushed away from the sun and didn't show any cometary tail. And we know that we produced this object artificially. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? Nature doesn't produce thin objects that can be pushed by sunlight. Uh, and uh, even if it's natural in origin, it must be something that we have never seen before. Uh, and so in that context, I contemplated the possibility that it is artificial and uh, it provides potential evidence for another civilization. And we should just search for more. You know, um, when I go to the kitchen and I find an ant 
uh, I get alarmed because I know that there must be many more ants out there. Uh, and so uh, we found this object after a few years of surveying the sky with a telescope in Hawaii, and uh, we should find more within a few years. And and then when the next the next one shows up uh, and approaches us, we should send a, a spacecraft with a camera that will take a photograph. You know, they say that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, in my case, a picture is worth sixty-six thousand words. The number of words in my book. <laughs> now, I mean, Professor, the, what's interesting here is that uh, the Oumuamua the, the emanated from, from the Vega um, star system, and, and it wasn't moving, uh, it's moving pretty quickly, but not at the speed of light, which means that it must have been traveling for a very, very, very long time, maybe hundreds of thousands of years uh, before, before it, it came to us, and it was essentially coming from a, a sort of nearby a star system. So it, it could mean that perhaps uh, if it wasn't produced naturally, that actually in galactic terms, it was actually a fairly nearby civilization that produced it or, or occurrence or whatever. Well, uh, actually it turns out that um, this is another anomaly of this object that uh, uh, it came from a very special frame of reference and that is called the local standard of rest. It's it's the frame that you get to when you average over the motions of all the stars in the neighborhood of the sun. It's sort of like the local uh, parking lot. Uh, and uh, this object was at rest in that local standard of rest. And only one in 500 stars is so much at rest uh, in that frame. And so if it came from a star system, why would it be at rest? You know, unlike all the stars that are buzzing around. Uh, and uh, this could potentially indicate something about its purpose. You know, it could be a member of a grid of uh, objects uh, that is used uh, as coordinates when, when you navigate through interstellar space, or it could be uh, a relay station, you know, in a network of, of relay stations uh, that are used for communication. Who knows? We just didn't get enough um, information about it, but it definitely did not look as if it's coming from a particular star. I mean, the direction of Vega is simply because the sun is moving in that direction, uh, you know, in the local standard of rest. So we are, we are moving in that direction. So it basically came from that direction, but it was not moving at all um, relative to the local standard of rest. We're talking to Avi Loeb. He is a professor of science at Harvard, and we're talking about the possibility of, um, of extraterrestrial Civilizations on 101.9 High FM. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. High FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is the new Blue Review with Benji Shulman. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the new Blue Review. Talking to Professor Avi Loeb today. Uh, he is a professor of science at Harvard, and we're talking about Oumuamua uh, and his book, uh, Extraterrestrial, about the theoretical possibilities of uh, other civilizations. Um, Avi, one of the other interesting things about Oumuamua is that you've been working on this technology of, of moving, using the sun uh, yourself. That was part of how you theorized that this object might be moving using using the sun. Could Could you explain that for people who... It sounds incredible that you could 
move using the sun. Could you explain that to us in a way that we can understand it, please? Yeah, it's actually very simple. By the way, everything that science deals with is uh, usually simple. I mean, it's just that some scientists prefer to portray it as complicated just to put themselves on a pedestal and to distance themselves from the public. But in reality, you know, everything can be explained quite simply. So in this case, um, uh, you know, if you imagine billiard balls or, or tennis balls uh, bouncing off a, an object, they give it a kick, right? Uh, and in, in much the same way, particles of light, when they bounce off a surface, uh, they give it a kick, like a mirror, for example. So if you make a mirror very thin and you bounce light uh, off it, then it will be pushed. Uh, and uh, that's exactly the, the method by which a light sail operates. It's just a sail which is pushed by reflecting light. That's all. Just like a sail on a boat is pushed by reflecting the wind. Uh, these are molecules of air that are bouncing off it, uh, just like billiard balls. Uh, so uh, uh, it's the same mechanism, and the advantage to use it for uh, space exploration is that um, the spacecraft does not need to carry the fuel. And in principle, the spacecraft can reach the speed of light because you are pushing it with light. And that turns out to be very handy because the nearest star to us is four light years away. It takes four years for light to travel the distance. And in fact, only this month, uh, the signal about the elections of 2016 arrived to Proxima Centauri, the nearest star, only now. So uh, if you want to get there within a couple of decades, you need to send a spacecraft at a fifth of the speed of light. And that actually is the challenge that uh, an entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, uh, Yuri Milner, posed to me. He came to my office, sat on the sofa, and asked me whether I'm willing to contemplate a trip to the nearest star. And uh, I ended up suggesting this method uh, after many months of uh, uh, looking into possibilities. And uh, we ended up uh, announcing this project of uh, propelling a light sail with a very powerful laser beam. Uh, we announced it in uh, April 2016, and uh, Stephen Hawking came for the public announcement. It so happened that it was around the Passover, so actually Stephen Hawking came to my home for Passover dinner and ate everything that my wife made for him. Professor, what has been the reaction of the scientific community to your your theorizing about the potential origins of Oumuamua? Well, it's very uh, negative. There is a lot of pushback. Um, and for obvious reasons, because uh, it takes people out of their comfort zone uh, to think that we are not the smartest kid on the block. Uh, I remember when my daughters were young, uh, you know, and they were at home, uh, they tended to think that they are the smartest, that they are the center of the world because they got all the attention from, from us. And uh, uh, then when they went to the kindergarten, they met uh, other kids and got a different perspective that perhaps they're not the smartest. And uh, they would have much rather preferred to stay at home. And that's sort of the instinct that I see uh, in my colleagues. They prefer not to think about the possibilities. Uh, they also... Um, they also argue that, uh, you know, the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And my reply to that is that extraordinary conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. Uh, and if there is something anomalous on the sky, we better explain it. 
we better come up with possible interpretations and then uh, try to figure out which one is correct based on evidence. That's the way science uh, progressed over the years. You know, we need to learn from the mistakes uh, that, uh, during the days of Galileo, who claimed that you know the sun is not moving around the earth. Actually, it's the earth that moves around the sun. And he was put in house arrest, and the philosophers at the time refused to look through his telescope. And uh, they knew the truth. They knew that the sun moves around the earth. Uh, but, of course, you know, all that did was that it uh, uh, maintained their ignorance, and um, uh, it didn't change the fact that the earth moves around the sun. You know, reality doesn't really care whether we ignore it. Uh, it's for our sake to gain as much knowledge as possible about the world, because it improves our, the way we cope with the world, with our environment. And to me, the biggest question that we can ask is who else lives or lived in our neighborhood? I mean, these sorts of debates inside the scientific community when it comes to the idea of extraterrestrial life are not necessarily new, though. When when you see, the, for example, the early debates around the discovery of pulses, Pulsar stars, for example, initially there was some thought that those were also extraterrestrial and then sort of turned out to have some kind of uh, natural phenomenon. We have the, 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 the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the SETI project. So it's not as if, you know, that maybe what you're suggesting is something new, but the actual idea that, that you could insert this into a scientific debate is not exactly novel. Uh, no, uh, but the point is that, well, first of all, Umuamua is a wake-up call because it gives us a new window into finding extraterrestrial civilizations. Uh, it's just like archaeology on Earth. We can look for relics that they left behind and perhaps learn something from them. So, and, and given the importance, the implications of finding something that belongs to another civilization, some equipment, uh, you know, that, uh, imp we, we cannot ignore that possibility. We have to explore it. Um, and uh, uh, what is happening right now is that SETI is underfunded. That, you know, it, it's uh, uh, underfunded by a factor of a thousand relative, for example, to the search for dark matter, the main matter in the universe, which we don't know what its nature is. So we are looking for uh, clues. But uh, the search for technological civilizations is not funded and it's ridiculed. And, you know, uh, my point about uh, this controversial discussions, first, we need to put all the... Uh, possibilities on the table and then collect evidence to find which one is true. Uh, you know, uh, in ancient history, people used to argue that the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should be forbidden. Uh, imagine if scientists would say, oh, this is a controversial subject. We don't want to discuss anatomy. Where would modern medicine be? Uh, so science has to address a question of great uh, interest to the public, if it has the tools to do so, because it can clarify the answer. Now, this idea of academic conservatism that you're talking about, I mean, if I think about issues in academia, academic orthodoxies, uh, you know, people being shut down from certain lines of inquiries, quite frankly, at the moment, my, my mind would go more to some of the humanities departments or uh, some of the social science departments, there's issues of cancel culture, you know, the universities have, have struggled with this, but, you know, you're dealing in an astrophysics environment, which you know, supposedly is much more fact-based and, as you say, evidence-based. So, so is this a, actually a problem across academia as a whole and maybe not just something that we, we're experiencing 
in humanities or, or is there like a bleed over effect happening in the way that we're structuring our academic discussions? No, no, I think it is a problem um, in physics and astronomy uh, right now uh, because there are subjects that are considered part of the mainstream that are completely speculative, not connected at all to experiments, like, for example, the multiverse, string theory, uh, extra dimensions. Uh, lots of ideas that are being contemplated have no connection to putting skin in the game, making a prediction that could be falsified by experiments, which was the traditional way of making progress about learning, you know, about the world. And the only reason I, I, I can see this happening is if the culture is motivated by people demonstrating that they are smart. You know, it's a sandbox uh, for demonstrating how clever you are. And in, in that case, you know, it doesn't matter whether it applies to nature. In fact, you don't want to put skin in the game because then you might be proven wrong. And that will lower your reputation. So I think actually the current culture is more about intellectual gymnastics, uh, you know, demonstrating how smart you are and not trying to understand the world. And that is unfortunate because, you know, I'm driven by the same curiosity as I had as a kid uh, growing in, a, in on a farm. And, you know, I don't care about all the labels that I carry. I want to understand nature. And, uh, you know, if I make a mistake, so be it. You know, it's a learning experience. I, you know, the one thing I learned from the sky over decades is a sense of modesty. We should be modest because we live for such a short time. We are such a small component in the big universe and what we know is a small island in a huge ocean of ignorance. How dare we be arrogant? You know, that, to me, I just cannot understand how people are. So this sense of modesty implies that, you know, we should rely on evidence, not assume that we know the answer in advance, not have prejudice, and be more tolerant to each other, be open-minded. And unfortunately, you know, that's not the case. And I was asked by the Harvard Gazette, you know, the, the Pravda of Harvard University, what is the one thing I would like to change about the world? And I said, I would like my colleagues to behave more like kids, uh, to be, you know, willing to learn, uh, be uh, open-minded, not uh, chase their image and ego all the time, and, you know, willing to put skin in the game, just like kids. You know, that's why kids get bruised. <laughs> now, the... The, you know, the, there's a huge amount of discussion that's not very academic at all when it comes to this topic. You, you provided for us a, a bunch of frameworks, a bunch of ways of thinking, uh, but, but, you know, there, there is a whole a group of people on Reddit and in, in, in this community of, of alien chasers. I mean, even in Israel itself, there was a recent general who said that Trump has been engaging with the Galactic Federation. So, so how do we take the discussion uh, around the idea of civilizations and maybe separate it out from 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 stuff which sort of sounds crazy and make it make it more mainstream? Yes. So the key is evidence. You know, science and uh, knowledge is based on evidence. Uh, when we deal with the world, I mean, you can do mathematics, which is completely separate. I mean, but. If you want to understand the world, you have to rely on evidence. And that's the problem I have with a claim about the Federation or uh, whatever Eshed was, was making. It was irresponsible on the side of the reporters to report about it without asking him for evidence, for documentation that supports what he says. Because, you know, anyone can say that they are Napoleon. There are lots of people that may say that. But then you ask them to, to show you their idea. 
And uh, if he doesn't say Napoleon, uh, and they keep insisting that there are Napoleons, you know, the, there is a place for those people. Uh, the point is we should rely on evidence. We cannot just make claims. And because we increase the noise in the system, and what we want is signal. And uh, the way to make progress is, of course, collecting more evidence and finding out without prejudice the answer to this question. Now, talking about the collection of evidence, you know, we had to wait a while for Oumuamua. Um, your, your theory is that there might be more of the stuff out there. So how do we prepare, prepare ourselves? What do, where do we need to be putting our scientific search tools so that, that the next time something like this comes along, we're more able to, uh, to, to get a handle on it? Yeah, so um, once again, it's collecting the right evidence. And I, I mentioned it in the context of space archaeology. So we want to get um, a photograph uh, that will tell us whether another object of the same class uh, is not natural. Um, and the, the way to do it is by sending a spacecraft uh, equipped with a camera as soon as we get an alert on um, such an object uh, approaching us. And uh, uh, there would be a new observatory called the Vera Rubin Observatory that will come online in less than three years uh, that will could potentially detect an Oumuamua-like object every month. And uh, at that point, we can start the planning on sending uh, cameras that will intercept the orbits of some of these and uh, will give us information. And of course, if one of them looks like a piece of equipment that is quite interesting, then we might land on it and, you know, put our hands on it and try to figure out what technology it represents, because that could save us a million years, you know, in our own technological development, if we find technologies that they develop well beyond what we can imagine right now. Um, in a way, you know, it, it would look like magic um, uh, for us, but, but uh, it will give us a shortcut. I mean, you might think, oh, it's just like cheating in an exam. Uh, we are, you know, we are looking over the shoulder of a, a smarter student and fi to find the answer. But, but I don't, you know, I don't care about that if we can save a million years in our development. Now, if people would like to buy your book or, or see one of your papers, stuff that you've written or, or other aspects, where can they where can they go and find it? Yes, yeah, so the book is in any store that sells books. Uh, it will appear in uh, uh, 26 countries worldwide. It's already out in many countries by now, uh, uh, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking. Uh, uh, it will appear in Israel as well uh, in, in, in a few months. And um, and uh, you can find more about uh, uh, my commentaries in Scientific American and, and other scientific publications and, and my history uh, by putting my name in Google, uh, Avi Loeb, L-O-E-B. I have a website that documents uh, most of my writings and you can find it there. But um, as I mentioned before, you know, I, I haven't changed much since the time I was a kid. And uh, just ignore the labels that you find there, just... Think of me as a farm boy trying to figure out the world. That's all. You ever think you'll go back to Israel? Uh, well, I was, you know, I was contemplating that every now and then. Uh, my parents uh, passed away um, over the past few years, and then they sold the farm. And I, I visited the after the funeral. I actually went there, and doesn't look like it used to be. You know, we we used to have ki uh, chicken in in the backyard, and uh, everything is is different now and I realized when I visited the place I realized that you know you can't go back to where you were I mean it's not a geographical place it's uh, also a, 
a place in time, you know, that I used to live through as a child, and, and it's not there anymore, it's gone. Uh, so it's just in my memory right now. And, you know, that sense of uh, how short-lived we are and uh, how small we are relative to the universe, again, brings in the message of modesty. And let's try and figure out what the world is about rather than, you know, fighting with each other, arguing... Uh, the differences between humans are, are so small compared to the big picture. You know, we are put on this stage without a script. You know, we are born into this world. Nobody tells us why and for what purpose. I mean, we can read texts that te say something about it. But really, the, the, the biggest fun, the biggest thrill for me is trying to figure out who else is on the stage. What can we learn from them? And, and what the stage is about? You know, what, what is, all the way out to the edge of the universe. What, what can we find and what does it tell us about the past? Professor Avilov, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on 101.9. Chai FM, thank you so much for joining us and uh, good luck finding the little green men. <laughs> I don't think there will be little, not green and not men. I, I really hope there will be women. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Professor Avilobi, he is a professor of science at Harvard University. Go check out his book, Extraterrestrial, about some of the theories of Oumuamua and space archaeology. We'll be back just after the break. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life.